I am Lucia. And I'm Nadia. In Who Rose the World podcast, we will talk about the European Union and United Nations and all the burning world issues that our generation will have to face when our time comes to rule the world. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Who Rules the World podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about scaling up anticipatory action to stem the tide of growing hunger. More than 80% of the world's most food insecure people are being hit by extreme weather and other stresses such as land degradation and pest infestation. In 2021, climate extremes were the predominant driver for acute hunger in eight countries, affecting 23.5 million people. The impact of the extreme climate impacts like droughts, heat waves and floods on the levels of global hunger cannot be contested. In such a context, the World Food Program is the world's largest humanitarian organization dedicated to fighting hunger, is helping food insecure communities to prepare for, respond to, and recover from climate shocks and stresses. Therefore, we are also extremely happy to have the World Food, Pro food Program's Paul uh, Scuchilas, who is a deputy director for UN Systems and Multilateral Engagement Division in the New York. Welcome so much to our podcast. Thank you for having me. So uh, before you get started, uh, could you maybe just uh, introduce uh, yourself a bit more and, and say a bit about your work? Sure. Thank you. I'm Paul Scachillis. I work at the UN World Food Program here in New York. Uh, we call it WFP. Uh, WFP, the World Food Program, is based in Rome. So I'm part of a small team that represents uh, WFP, and we try to engage on hunger, hunger solutions, uh, the, the development goal two, which is a zero hunger world here in New York. And as you know, in New York, pretty much every country sends an ambassador, a high level official from their government to represent them in the United Nations. So it's a big opportunity to talk about hunger and hunger solutions. And uh, we also here in New York, we have the UN Secretariat in various forums. Um, just this year, we've had the water conference, the conference on gender, the conference on technology and upcoming conferences on sustainable development goals. So my, my job is to bring hunger issues to those forums and try to showcase solutions and also highlight that this is really a global problem that needs a global solution. Mm. In terms of me, uh, my background, I've been with the World Food Program for about 14 years. I've been in New York um, just before COVID hit. And before that, I was mostly working in the field. I worked in, I, I managed uh, WFP operations in uh, West Bank and Gaza. I worked on the Syria refugee crisis in Jordan and in Lebanon. Uh, I did missions in Rwanda, Pakistan, Libya, and some, oh, sorry, Tunisia and some other places like that. And uh, before that, I worked in the U.S. government on social protection and safety net programs. Well, you've really been at, at a lot of uh, key places, uh, I can definitely hear. So maybe just on, on a more personal uh, note, what inspired you to, to start working in, in the World Food Program? Well, that's a good question. I, I grew up, um, my mom raised me to work uh, on service to others. So we used to spend Wednesdays going to local food pantry. We cook meals for um, homeless people, just spaghetti, and just to be with them and hear their stories. Um, so I grew up with that. I really credit my mother for instilling those values to try to give back. And that's, that's what we did. We would do Wednesdays. And in university, I also was interested in, in, in those issues and also global issues. And in, it was 2008, 2009, uh, we were in a global food 
and financial crisis. There was a banking crisis and um, issues with food. That was the previous food crisis. And WFP had was looking for someone who had a sort of profile like mine. So I applied and I got in. And I was really privileged to work there because a lot of the issues I worked on domestically um, on social protection, safety net programs, economic opportunity programs here in the US, it's a similar issue we're facing abroad. Um, if you're poor, whether you're in New York or Berlin or in um, Sudan, if you don't have enough food, you don't have enough food. It's a similar issue, different context, but similar issues. So I just thought I could bring some of that work I did on social protection programs here and bring that to the UN system. And it's been a learning experience for me, for sure. I've learned a lot from my colleagues, particularly the national staff colleagues I worked with who have so much experience. Um, and also just working with peers like at UNICEF and the, the HCR, which works on refugees. And to be exposed to all those ideas has been really a fantastic experience. That's very interesting to hear, and especially also the fact that your childhood values are kind of the core of what you do today. It's, it's very amazing. Um, and now if you just jump into our first segment and the first questions, uh, what are the current challenges faced by global food systems in the face of the climate change? Sure. So um, let me just zoom out and then get to climate change. So when I first worked at WFP, it was about 13, 14 years ago. And we had a recipe for food security. It was, we would tell countries, if you want to get food security, there's three pillars of it. The first is make sure that there's enough food, so food production, grow enough food. The second is access to food, which is can poor families afford nutritious food, not just empty calories, but nutritious food. And the third is ensuring nutrition, so the right food at the right time. People who are pregnant and lactating or under medication for HIV, AIDS, or TB, they have special nutrition needs, elderly people, young people. And so the right food at the right time. So those are the three pillars. And we would say, let us help you uh, get your country with these three pillars and you can have, you can achieve better food security. Well, today things are much more challenging. So if you're a country and you do those three things, you're swimming upstream still. What are you swimming upstream against? One is we have, uh, there's three things. One is um, conflict. Uh, conflict is affecting all countries. Um, uh, there's, there's conflict-related migration and refugees. There's instability uh, in countries that have regional implications. So conflict, um, and where there is conflict, there's no food security uh, because uh, livelihoods are disrupted and people are on the move. The second uh, issue is the economic conditions that we're facing. Um, started with COVID, but continues. High prices, economic instability, high levels of debt. That's what the Secretary General has been talking about this past week. And um, uh, the third thing is climate change. So even if you're doing all these things right, you're swimming upstream against these global currents that make it really hard to achieve food security. So let me dive in a little bit on, um, on climate change. What does climate change mean for food security and the people that we're serving? We know that 40% uh, of the world's population lives in areas highly vulnerable to climate extremes. So that means that they can have floods or droughts or both heat waves, we're going through that right now, um, they're subject to climate extremes. Um, we know that there's a severe underinvestment in the most fragile context for climate funding. So one of the big challenges we're having globally is um, uh, the places that are most impacted by climate change are the least invested in. And that's, that's in some ways understandable, but completely not right. 
it's understandable because it's hard to do large-scale projects in very fragile contexts because there's no stability to do a large-scale project. And I think that's the value out of organizations like WFP and HCR and UNICEF and UNDP is that we can, we're present in fragile contexts. So that can be a gateway to get climate investment, at least at a community level, um, into these countries. So um, these, are, these are big opportunities. And we know that just last year, we just did a wrap-up report of, of last year, and we, we estimate that 57 million people were placed in very hardship uh, situation in terms of food security, um, just because driven by climate. So it's a big challenge uh, right now on the hunger front is, is climate. Definitely. So, so now you talked a lot about uh, the really horrible challenges that, that we see. Uh, but what do you see as some of the important actions related to adapting the global food system to tackle these uh, challenges like climate change so that we can actually change those things? That is, that's where the opportunity is here. And I would say there's three major things we're looking at. The first is we need to anticipate better. Um, there is good data out there um, and to, to help communities know what might come and um, help them prepare. So anticipatory action is critical. There's a couple of things I'll mention in that regard. One is weather insurance. Um, if you're a smallholder farmer and floods occur or a drought occurs, that could really set you back. You may never get back on your feet because to invest in next year's seeds, if you're in debt and you didn't sell this year's harvest, you're, you're stuck. So weather insurance helps bring a little bit more predictability to that. And sometimes it helps them adjust and change crops or invest more in, in adaptation for their farm so that they can grow better in the future. So weather insurance is one. We're doing those, those on at a country level um, as well as a regional level in, in um, certain areas. And we think that that's a very promising thing to invest more in. Another is, you know, we're giving cash assistance. Um, we can top up cash assistance before something strikes, like before a drought or before the storm season in the Caribbean um, and help communities use that that extra money to, to, to adapt or mitigate the risks that they're facing. Um, and then I think early warning systems are critical. There's so much data. I mean, you and I can just Google so much data, but getting the right data at the right time to the most vulnerable people is a challenge. So we're working on early warning systems for particularly rural communities, agriculturalists, and to try to bring that right to their phone. And the best systems let them contribute to the data. So what are they seeing as farmers or pastoralists? What are they facing? They can capture pictures on their phone or just give little reports, but then they benefit from timely information. And that could also be, a, a, you know, um, that can anticipate a disaster, also work on recovery. Um, so if there's an earthquake or something happened, um, this can also give messages or information about early recovery. So I think having those systems early warning systems that are two-way communications um, is, is a big area that we need to continue to invest in. We have many things ongoing, but we need to continue on that. So I think we can see by now that the food security is very uh, interdisciplinary, intersectorial uh, topic or issue we have to tackle. Uh, how exactly does uh, WFP work with different sectors to implement its climate action programs? That's a great question. So. One of the things I always say when I go to a country to work on food issues is that there's rarely a minister of food security. True. <laughs> there should be, but there usually is not. So we need to work with the minister of labor, the minister of social affairs, the minister of agriculture. And when you add climate on top of that, 
it's even more. So now it's the Ministry of Water, um, you know, public works, like sometimes they have a climate minister. So there's more ministries to bring together. And that's a good thing because, it, you know, food security is inherently a cross-sectoral, multi-sectoral issue and uh, with climate even more so. So I would just say we do work with the agriculture sector closely. We work with water ministries, social affairs and labor. You know, climate impacts jobs and it impacts uh, existing infrastructure. And so you have to really think about how can you help people go from a climate impacted job to something that might contribute in a positive way to the green economy. And then technology, there's ministries of technology that are emerging in many countries. And I think it's really important that uh, we look at digital public infrastructure at the last mile. They're often in the capital or the big cities, they have some of that and some of those investments, but is it reaching the furthest areas that are most impacted the rural community? So I, I would say we always wanna work on digital pu public infrastructure and make sure that people have access. And of course, health and nutrition are big issues impacted by climate change. So we try to bring all those together. It's something we were doing before we were so aware of the climate crisis or so involved in it, and it's even more so now. Wow, it's, it's really clear how many uh, challenges that there actually are uh, when, when we listen to a lot of uh, your messages and that climate change is really just another crisis on, on top on a lot of other things happening. And one of the really current developments is the Black Sea Grain Initiative. Uh, and it would be really interesting to hear some of your perspectives on how will the end of the Black Sea Grain Initiative affect populations that, that was dependent on it and, and how does it affect the World Food Program's uh, supply? Yeah, so that was very concerning when the, w the war broke out in Ukraine uh, for the Ukrainian people, first and foremost, but also for the, the implications for the world of, uh, of risk to the, the significant breadbasket of the world. So we've been concerned since day one about the, the, about the Ukrainians, but also about this, the secondary impacts of that. So I think what's really critical is uh, food staples are hard to replace because you have to plant them. It takes time. And so it was really important to restore commercial markets at a price point that was affordable and calm the global commodity markets. Um, uh, and the Secretary General really had a breakthrough uh, with his agreement. And um, what's important now is um, all diplomatic efforts underway to try to make sure that that can be restored or the impacts can be mitigated. And we looked, you know, that's at a political level. I don't work at a political level. But um, the Secretary General has been had several statements on it recently, and I know that this is the top of his agenda. Chris, and now we got this kind of an overview of the global food systems, and now let's dive into what needs to be done or what should or could be done. Um, so first of all, what are some of the specific initiatives or policies that uh, WFP is advocating for in order to ensure that climate adaptation measures for food insecure communities are prioritized? So I think, one of the things that we're trying to point out is we go to the we go to the COPE conferences. There's one coming up um, in Dubai. Um, the last one was in Egypt. I think you all attended uh, those, which is great to have young people there. Um, and at these conferences, we're very concerned about the fragile states or the most fragile states. And we say, well, you know, we're active in these fragile states, and we've seen the impacts. And on a moral level these people are not, these communities are not emitters of carbon, yet they're at the front line of the climate crisis. The impacts are hitting them the hardest. So on a moral level, it's unjust that they're bearing the biggest cost of this, yet they've done a, almost nothing in terms of emitting. So it's really important to think about the fragile context and what we can do constructively 
um, on those. So I'll give one example we do in West Africa. It's a simple thing, but it's very powerful. In West Africa, in the Sahel region, they're really dealing with desertification, pressure on water, pressure on arable land. And the desert is just getting bigger and bigger. You've seen this on maps. And that's one of the places where it's most pronounced. So there's a simple approach that we're taking with communities there. And what we do is we plant these, we, we make these mounds. They're maybe two meters. They're in crescent shape. And we work on the areas that are brown or going brown. We create these crescents. We put native species on the crescents, and the crescents are maybe 10 meters apart. And from that, the native species take root. They start to retain the soil. They start to prevent erosion, and they start to give space for other species to grow. And in a few years from these crescents, which are little green crescents in a brown uh, landscape, the whole landscape starts to regenerate and starts to go green. And the impact of that is amazing. Uh, what we're seeing is literally brown to green. On the ground, we're seeing uh, retain, retainment of soil. We're seeing the restoration of moisture. So moisture doesn't just evaporate, it stays in a cycle. And we're seeing the restoration of um, aquifers, underground aquifers, which the communities rely on for, for, for irrigation, but also drinking water. And so the simple approach is greening an area that we before people had given up on and just said this area is just going to be desert there's nothing we can do and now people can return animals can return herders can return farmers can return that's a simple thing but it's so powerful and it's in the most fragile context we're active throughout the sahel doing that in partnership with others so there's these things that we can do like that that are simple but extremely powerful and it may not be a big ribbon cutting event with a big new hydroelectric uh, clean power station that we hope we can do one day, but it's something that today is making a difference. So I would say for these extremely fragile contexts, there are hopeful ways forward, and we really need to kind of redouble our work on that, on things like that. Thank you so much, and, and really interesting to hear those uh, really concrete examples. I also think that that is one of the things that's really going to motivate people to change and do more, is really when we see those concrete changes out in, out in the real world. Uh, but one of the things that really strikes me is how that there's not going to be one single uh, part of society that's going to solve uh, all of the problems. And it would be really interesting to hear your thoughts on how public-private uh, partnerships uh, can, can be part of contributing to adapting global food systems to the global challenges like climate change. Yeah, that's, I think, one of the keys. And I know the Secretary General's also called on the private sector to do more and to, to come in, and that's a really important component. So if we just think about the past century, so many breakthroughs were public-private partnerships. Sometimes they were related to, to wars and scale-up for wars, and later something good came out of that. But public-private has helped us get the internet, it's helped us do so many clean energy, um, new materials that are lighter, more climate friendly, more durable. Um, there are so many things, such a track record of public-private partnerships that have been huge breakthroughs. Battery science, we're seeing. You know, the reason one of the reasons we're able to have electric cars is because there was public-private partnerships and public investment in private sector. So, the the um, the challenge now is to redouble that urgency uh, and bring those win-win solutions. Because we know the private sector needs these solutions as much as, as the general public does. So you know, I think that's why um, at the leadership level of countries and in the UN system, they keep 
going back to that point, I think that there's a huge potential and we need to continue to tap into it. Okay, now if you look also at one another very important partner, civil society, uh, what role does civil society play in promoting sustainable and climate resilient food systems? One of the most important things that we do as UN System is to work with local actors in the community. If we just come in with all the ideas from Geneva or New York or Nairobi and fly in, that's not the right way to, to do things. What we want to do is support and support the local government, whether it's municipal, national, provincial, and support the local actors because they're on the front lines and they know best what they need and we want to support their lead and their leadership and their ownership. And I think that's where civil society comes in. When I've worked in the field, it, you know, everything from socioeconomic methodology to see who should get these benefits and then how do we know it's working. Instead of taking um, international experts to help us with those, we hired local experts from the university, for example. And we would get civil society to help us do gender better in a way that's culturally relevant to the context we're working in. So there's so many opportunities to work with civil society, whether they're NGOs or universities or just experts. Um, and that helps bring the local ownership to these, to these things so that when we do depart, we're leaving something stronger behind. And it all, you know, it all takes root with civil society. So I think they play a critical role and we, we should continue to redouble our work with them. Thank you so much, Paul, for taking the time to talk with us. I definitely learned a lot of new things and very inspiring things as well uh, of the work of uh, WFP. Um, so thank you for joining our podcast um, and see you in the next episode. Thank you. This was Who Rules the World podcast by European Union Youth Delegates Lucia and Nadia. WRW coming soon with next episode on SoundCloud and other platforms.